You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. Harper Audio Presents would like to pay tribute to the beginning of the shopping season with some selections from Predictably Irrational by Dan Ariely. Ariely, in addition to being one of our most favorite authors, is the James B. Duke Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Economics at Duke University. He's also the founder of the Center for Advanced Hindsight. Yes, you heard that correctly. His work has been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Boston Globe, and elsewhere. Here now is Predictably Irrational, read by Simon Jones. Chapter 1. The Truth About Relativity Why everything is relative, even when it shouldn't be. One day, while browsing the World Wide Web, obviously for work, not just wasting time, I stumbled on an ad on the website of a magazine, The Economist. I read these offers one at a time. The first offer, the internet subscription for $59, seemed reasonable. The second option, the $125 print subscription, seemed a bit expensive, but still reasonable. But then I read the third option, a print and internet subscription for $125. I read it twice before my eye ran back to the previous options. Who would want to buy the print option alone, I wondered, when both the internet and the print subscriptions were offered for the same price? Now, the print-only option may have been a typographical error, but I suspect that the clever people at The Economist's London offices, and they are clever and quite mischievous in a British sort of way, were actually manipulating me. I am pretty certain that they wanted me to skip the internet-only option, which they assumed would be my choice, since I was reading the advertisement on the web, and jumped to the more expensive option, internet and print. But how could they manipulate me? I suspect it's because the economists' marketing wizards, and I could just picture them in their school ties and blazers, knew something important about human behavior. Humans rarely choose things in absolute terms. We don't have an internal value meter that tells us how much things are worth. Rather, we focus on the relative advantage of one thing over another, and estimate value accordingly. For instance, we don't know how much a six-cylinder car is worth, but we assume it's more expensive than the four-cylinder model. In the case of The Economist, I may not have known whether the internet-only subscription at $59 was a better deal than the print-only option at $125, but I certainly knew that the print and internet option for $125 was a better deal than the print-only option at $125. In fact, you could reasonably deduce that in the combination package, the internet subscription is free. It's a bloody steal! Go for it, Governor! I could almost hear them shout from the riverbanks of the Thames. And I have to admit, if I had been inclined to subscribe, I probably would have taken the package deal myself. Later, when I tested the offer on a large number of participants, the vast majority preferred the internet and print deal. So what was going on here? Let me start with a fundamental observation. Most people don't know what they want unless they see it in context. We don't know what kind of racing bike we want 
until we see a champ in the Tour de France ratcheting the gears on a particular model. We don't know what kind of speaker system we like until we hear a set of speakers that sounds better than the previous one. We don't even know what we want to do with our lives until we find a relative or friend who is doing just what we think we should be doing. Everything is relative, and that's the point. Like an airplane pilot landing in the dark, we want runway lights on either side of us, guiding us to the place where we can touch down our wheels. In the case of The Economist, the decision between the internet-only and print-only options would take a bit of thinking. Thinking is difficult, and sometimes unpleasant. So The Economist's marketers offered us a no-brainer. Relative to the print-only option, the print and internet option looks clearly superior. The geniuses of The Economist aren't the only ones who understand the importance of relativity. Take Sam, the television salesman. He plays the same general type of trick on us when he decides which televisions to put together on display. A 36-inch Panasonic for $690. A 42-inch Toshiba for $850. A 50-inch Philips for $1,480. Which one would you choose? In this case, Sam knows that customers find it difficult to compute the value of different options. Who really knows if the Panasonic at $690 is a better deal than the Philips at $1,480? But Sam also knows that given three choices, most people will take the middle choice, as in landing your plane between the runway lights. So guess which television Sam prices as the middle option. That's right, the one he wants to sell. Of course, Sam is not alone in his cleverness. The New York Times ran a story recently about Greg Rapp, a restaurant consultant who gets paid to work out the pricing for menus. He knows, for instance, how lamb sold this year as opposed to last year, whether lamb did better paired with squash or with risotto, and whether orders decreased when the price of the main course was hiked from $39 to $41. One thing Rapp has learned is that high-priced entrees on the menu boost revenue for the restaurant even if no one buys them. Why? Because even though people generally won't buy the most expensive dish on the menu, they will order the second most expensive dish. Thus, by creating an expensive dish, a restaurateur can lure customers into ordering the second most expensive choice, which can be cleverly engineered to deliver a higher profit margin. So let's run through The Economist's sleight of hand in slow motion. As you recall, the choices were... 1. Internet-only subscription for $59. 2. Print-only subscription for $125. 3. Print and Internet subscription for $125. When I gave these options to 100 students at MIT's Sloan School of Management, they opted as follows. 1. Internet-only subscription for $59. 16 students. 2. Print-only subscription for $125, zero students. Three, print and internet subscription for $125, 84 students. So far, these Sloan MBAs are smart cookies. They all saw the advantage in the print and internet offer over the print-only offer. But were they influenced by the mere presence of the print-only option, which I will henceforth and for good reason call the decoy? In other words... Suppose that I removed the decoy. Would the students respond as before? 
16 for the internet only, and 84 for the combination. Certainly they would react the same way, wouldn't they? After all, the option I took out was one that no one selected, so it should make no difference, right? Au contraire. This time, 68 of the students chose the internet-only option for $59, up from 16 before, and only 32 chose the combination subscription for $125, down from 84 before. What could have possibly changed their minds? Nothing rational, I assure you. It was the mere presence of the decoy that sent 84 of them to the print and internet option, and 16 to the internet-only option. And the absence of the decoy had them choosing differently, with 32 for print and internet, and 68 for internet-only. This is not only irrational, but predictably irrational as well. Why? I'm glad you asked. Let me offer you a visual demonstration of relativity. Imagine a circle surrounded by other smaller circles. Then imagine a same-sized circle surrounded by other larger circles. In this visual illusion, the middle circle can't seem to stay the same size. When placed among the larger circles, it gets smaller. When placed among the smaller circles, it grows bigger. The middle circle is the same size in both positions, of course, but it appears to change depending on what we place next to it. This might be a mere curiosity, but for the fact that it mirrors the way the mind is wired. We are always looking at the things around us in relation to others. We can't help it. This holds true not only for physical things, toasters, bicycles, puppies, restaurant entrees and spouses, but for experiences such as vacations and educational options and for ephemeral things as well, emotions, attitudes and points of view. We always compare jobs with jobs, vacations with vacations, lovers with lovers and wines with wines. All this relativity reminds me of a line from the film Crocodile Dundee when a street hoodlum pulls a switchblade on our hero, Paul Hogan. You call that a knife? says Hogan, incredulously, withdrawing a bowie blade from the back of his boot. Now this, he says with a sly grin, is a knife. Relativity is relatively easy to understand, but there's one aspect of relativity that consistently trips us up. It's this. We not only tend to compare things with one another, but also tend to focus on comparing things that are easily comparable, and avoid comparing things that cannot be compared easily. That may be a confusing thought, so let me give you an example. Suppose you're shopping for a house in a new town. Your real estate agent guides you to three houses, all of which interest you. One of them is a contemporary, and two are colonials. All three cost about the same. They are all equally desirable, and the only difference is that one of the colonials, the decoy, needs a new roof and the owner has knocked a few thousand dollars off the price to cover the additional expense. So which one will you choose? The chances are good that you will not choose the contemporary, and you will not choose the colonial that needs the new roof, but you will choose the other colonial. Why? Here's the rationale, which is actually quite irrational. We like to make decisions based on comparisons. In the case of the three houses, we don't know much about the contemporary, we don't have another house to compare it with, so that house goes on the sidelines. 
but we do know that one of the colonials is better than the other one. That is, the colonial with the good roof is better than the one with the bad roof. Therefore, we will reason that it is better overall, and go for the colonial with the good roof, spurning the contemporary and the colonial that needs a new roof. To better understand how relativity works, consider two products and two attributes. We have two options, each of which is better on a different attribute. Option A is better on attribute 1, let's say quality. Option B is better on attribute 2, let's say beauty. Obviously, these are two very different options, and the choice between them is not simple. Now consider what happens if we add another option, called minus A. This option is clearly worse than option A, with regard to both attributes, but it is also very similar to it, making the comparison between them easy and suggesting that A is not only better than minus A, but also better than B. In essence, introducing minus A, the decoy, creates a simple relative comparison with A, and hence makes A look better, not just relative to minus A, but overall as well. As a consequence, the inclusion of minus A in the set, even if no one ever selects it, makes people more likely to make A their final choice. Does this selection process sound familiar? Remember the pitch put together by The Economist? The marketers there knew that we didn't know whether we wanted an internet subscription or a print subscription, but they figured that of the three options, the print and internet combination would be the offer we would take. Here's another example of the decoy effect. Suppose you are planning a honeymoon in Europe. You've already decided to go to one of the major romantic cities, and have narrowed your choices to Rome and Paris, your two favourites. The travel agent presents you with the vacation packages for each city, which includes airfare, hotel accommodations, sightseeing tours, and a free breakfast every morning. Which would you select? For most people, the decision between a week in Rome and a week in Paris is not effortless. Rome has the Colosseum, Paris the Louvre. Both have a romantic ambience, fabulous food, and fashionable shopping. It's not an easy call. But suppose you are offered a third option. Rome without the free breakfast, called Minus Rome, or the decoy. If you were to consider these three options, Paris, Rome, Minus Rome, you would immediately recognise that whereas Rome with the free breakfast is about as appealing as Paris with the free breakfast, the inferior option, which is Rome without the free breakfast, is a step down. The comparison between the clearly inferior option, minus Rome, makes Rome with the free breakfast seem even better. In fact, minus Rome makes Rome with the free breakfast look so good that you judge it to be even better than the difficult-to-compare option, Paris with the free breakfast. Once you see the decoy effect in action, you realise that it is the secret agent in more decisions than we could imagine. It even helps us decide whom to date, and ultimately whom to marry. Let me describe an experiment that explored just this subject. As students hurried around MIT one cold weekday, I asked some of them whether they would allow me to take their pictures for a study. In some cases I got disapproving looks. A few students walked away, but most of them were happy to participate, and before long, the card in my digital camera was filled with images of smiling students. I returned to my office and printed 60 of them, 30 of women 
and thirty of men. The following week, I made an unusual request of twenty-five of my undergraduates. I asked them to pair the thirty photographs of men and the thirty of women by physical attractiveness, matching the men with other men and the women with other women. That is, I had them pair the Brad Pitts and the George Clooney's of MIT, as well as the Woody Allens and the Danny DeVitos. Sorry, Woody and Danny. Out of these thirty pairs, I selected the six pairs, three female pairs and three male pairs, that my students seemed to agree were most alike. Now, like Dr. Frankenstein himself, I set about giving these faces my special treatment. Using Photoshop, I mutated the pictures just a bit, creating a slightly but noticeably less attractive version of each of them. I found that just the slightest movement of the nose threw off the symmetry. Using another tool, I enlarged one eye, eliminated some of the hair, and added traces of acne. No flashes of lightning illuminated my laboratory, nor was there a baying of the hounds on the moor. But this was still a good day for science. By the time I was through, I had the MIT equivalent of George Clooney in his prime, A, and the MIT equivalent of Brad Pitt in his prime, B, and also a George Clooney with a slightly drooping eye and thicker nose, minus A, the decoy, and a less symmetrical version of Brad Pitt, minus B, another decoy. I followed the same procedure for the less attractive pairs. I had the MIT equivalent of Woody Allen with his usual lopsided grin, A, and Woody Allen with an unnervingly misplaced eye, minus A, as well as Danny DeVito, B, and a slightly disfigured version of Danny DeVito, minus B. For each of the twelve photographs, in fact, I now had a regular version, as well as an inferior, minus, decoy version. It was now time for the main part of the experiment. I took all the sets of pictures and made my way over to the student union. Approaching one student after another, I asked each to participate. When the students agreed, I handed them a sheet with three pictures. Some of them had the regular picture, A, the decoy of that picture, minus A, and the other regular picture, B. Others had the regular picture, B, the decoy of that picture, minus B, and the other regular picture, A. For example, a set might include a regular Clooney, A, a decoy Clooney, minus A, and a regular pit, B. Or a regular pit, B, a decoy pit, minus B, and a regular Clooney, A. After selecting a sheet with either male or female pictures, according to their preferences, I asked the students to circle the people they would pick to go on a date with, if they had a choice. All this took quite a while, and when I was done, I had distributed 600 sheets. What was my motive in all this? Simply to determine if the existence of the distorted picture, minus A or minus B, would push my participants to choose the similar but undistorted picture. In other words, would a slightly less attractive George Clooney, minus A, push the participants to choose the perfect George Clooney over the perfect Brad Pitt. There were no pictures of Brad Pitt or George Clooney in my experiment, of course. Pictures A and B showed ordinary students. But do you remember how the existence of a colonial-style house needing a new roof might push you to choose a perfect colonial over a contemporary house, simply because the decoy colonial would give you something against which to compare the regular colonial? And in The Economist's ad, didn't the print-only option for $125 push people to take the print and internet option for 
Similarly, would the existence of a less perfect person, minus A or minus B, push people to choose the perfect one, A or B, simply because the decoy option served as a point of comparison? It did. Whenever I handed out a sheet that had a regular picture, its inferior version, and another regular picture, the participants said they would prefer to date the regular person, the one who was similar but clearly superior to the distorted version over the other undistorted person on the sheet. This was not just a close call. It happened 75% of the time. To explain the decoy effect further, let me tell you something about bread-making machines. When William Sonoma first introduced a home bread bakery machine for $275, most consumers were not interested. What was a home bread-making machine anyway? Was it good or bad? Did one really need home-baked bread? Why not just buy a fancy coffee maker sitting nearby instead? Flustered by poor sales, the manufacturer of the bread machine brought in a marketing research firm, which suggested a fix. Introduce an additional model of the bread maker, one that was not only larger, but priced about 50% higher than the initial machine. Now sales began to rise, along with many loaves of bread, though it was not the large bread maker that was being sold. Why? Simply because consumers now had two models of bread makers to choose from. Since one was clearly larger and much more expensive than the other, people didn't have to make their decision in a vacuum. They could say, well, I don't know much about bread makers, but I do know that if I were to buy one, I'd rather have the smaller one for less money. And that's when bread makers began to fly off the shelves. Okay for bread makers. But let's take a look at the decoy effect in a completely different situation. What if you are single and hope to appeal to as many attractive potential dating partners as possible at an upcoming singles event? My advice would be to bring a friend who has your basic physical characteristics, similar colouring, body type, facial features, but is slightly less attractive. Minus you. Why? Because the folks you want to attract will have a hard time evaluating you with no comparables around. However, if you are compared with a minus you, the decoy friend will do a lot to make you look better, not just in comparison with the decoy, but also in general, and in comparison with all the other people around. It may sound irrational, and I can't guarantee this, but the chances are good that you will get some extra attention. Of course, don't just stop at looks. If great conversation will win the day, be sure to pick a friend for the singles event who can't match your smooth delivery and rapier wit. By comparison, you'll sound great. Now that you know this secret, be careful. When a similar but better-looking friend of the same sex asks you to accompany him or her for a night out, you might wonder whether you have been invited along for your company or merely as a decoy. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.